You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on a post-Father's Day Monday. And of course, post-Father's Day Monday should be a holiday all of its own. I think dads need two days. I celebrated today, post-Father's Day Monday. I celebrated by eating leftovers for what we had for lunch on Father's Day. We had Jack Stack, and I'm telling you what, it was off the charts, even by Jack Stack standards. If you're from out of town and uh, you don't know what I'm speaking of, Jack Stack is one of the multiple excellent barbecue spots here in town. And Kelsey went and bought us some uh, beef and some burnt ends. Burnt ends are a uniquely Kansas City thing. I know you may think your city does them, but what you're doing is not burnt ends. These were awesome and they were so good they're even this morning Ooh, they're like butter did i say morning yeah i may have i may have eaten lunch a little early i was a little excited so anyway post father's day great day spent uh, lots of time with my kids got some great sweet notes uh before that went and uh had church which was fun got to the venue where we meet on sunday mornings and there was unexpectedly a play set up on stage. There was like full-on sets from what appeared to be Gilligan's Island, although I was told later it was not. And so we just did church in front of it. You know, when you're church planting, you just make it work. You can't have everything your way. It really wasn't that big a deal. It was it was kind of funny, actually. Anyway, we started a new series entitled Miracles the Jesus Way. Talking about the miracles of Jesus through the Gospels, why they're there, what were people's reactions to them? And how do we feel when Jesus steps in and miraculously changes circumstances, sometimes circumstances that we had grown so accustomed to that when they change, we don't know how we feel about that. Anyway, here we go. Part one of Miracles the Jesus Way right after this. Turn to Matthew 8. We are going to dive into a series called uh, Miracles the Jesus Way. I'm going to take the next few weeks and talk about some of the miracles of Jesus because we want the fullness of who Jesus is and what he offers. I am in hot pursuit of the whole person of Jesus. I do not want part of what we learn in Scripture. I want the whole enchilada. And if you know Kelsey and I for, for really the last 20 years, we've been married about 30 years, but at the 10-year mark, the Lord began to do something in our lives, and we have grown hungry for all we can know about Jesus and all we can experience, not just that we can know, but all that we can encounter in Him. Modern thinking would like to remove the miraculous from Jesus' teaching and put Him on a shelf with Gandhi and Buddha and other religious leaders. And say, let's just put him there. I can stand Jesus as long as he can stand alongside those others. Because for some reason, Jesus without miraculous power is more palatable to them than a Jesus who can raise the dead. People may even say he was a good teacher, but you don't believe all of those legends, do you? 
Like, he was a good guy, and he said a lot of good things, but you don't believe that he really raised the dead or healed people. Surely you don't believe those things. This is the irony. The people who are skeptical of Jesus' miracles will read about a nine-year-old boy in Tibet that they think is the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, and they'll say, well, life is mysterious. You never know. If you want to follow a Jesus that will help you stand in the face of what you will face in life, you need a Jesus of miracles, not just a Jesus of good teaching. You need a Jesus of power. Jesus' teaching that everyone holds up to a high standard was actually made authoritative by his miracles. He validated himself and his teaching by his miracles. And I am asking Jesus to validate his presence and his teaching, even here in the bridge, with his miraculous power. Now, yes, the most powerful witness you can have is to serve Jesus for 50, 60, 70, 80 years and be faithful. And I want that. That's the kind of life I want. But I also want to see children healed. And I want to see lives restored. And I want to see the things that we can't explain just by good teaching, but because Jesus came in and did something that he said he would do. That's the Jesus we're in pursuit of. 1932, third game of the World Series, Babe Ruth did the most audacious thing in baseball. Stepped up to the plate, being harassed by the other team, he points to the outfield fence 440 feet away and immediately hits a home run. Calls a home run. It's like the most, the only thing I can think of in the sports world would be more outrageous would be calling a hole in one. Okay, but to call a, a home run and then it hit it. But what's the old phrase? It's not bragging if you can do it, right? Jesus could do miracles, and his ability to do miracles gave his teaching authority. In John 10, 37 and 38, he says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. <laughs> if you're not seeing miracles, then, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Maybe it's not the miracles with, of Jesus that people have a problem with, but the authority that comes when Jesus does miracles. Because the Jesus that can raise the dead has the authority to look at you and say, this is what I want. Suddenly he's not a good teacher anymore. Suddenly he's a directive word into your life, and you have to wrestle with that. And as long as he was just a good teacher, it was easier to put that aside. But now he's raising the dead and healing people, and now what he says matters in your life. So for a few weeks, I just want to examine some of the miracles of Jesus. One, to ask him to move that way among us. Okay? Jesus is not looking for you to lower your expectations of him. We joke about something, you know, anything time you do something with so many kids, it never turns out like you think it's going to. Those of you with small kids, you know, you can have the highest idea of it's going to be like this, and it's never like this. And so at our, jo our house, we joke about, you know, success through lowered expectations. You lower expectations, everything's fine. Some of you, though, are living your spiritual lives that way, and you're finding success through lowered expectations. Jesus is not looking for a hall pass from you. He's not looking for you to lower your expectations to meet your experience so that you're okay with Jesus. I want to ask him to move in the miraculous among us. 
Second, I want to examine how the people perceived those miracles in that day. People's hearts can be hard even to miracles. People who saw him heal the sick and saw him raise the dead were in the crowd who yelled crucify him. Isn't that crazy? How do you watch a guy raise the dead and then later shout for his death? I want to to study how people responded to the miracles in the gospel. Finally, I want to examine how we react when he moves in our lives. Because his response to his moving in our lives determines whether or not we experience the fullness of who he is. There are times when he moves in our lives and our response to that is so off-putting that he goes, Okay, I, I was moving and you didn't receive it. And so now you got what you got. And he lets us sit in our lack because of how we responded to when he did move. I've got a good friend who pastors in Las Vegas, uh, Paul Goulet. Paul tells the story of early on in their church, they begin to see people getting healed. And I mean demonstrably, like verified by medical experts, healed. And with that came some unusual demonstrations. If someone has struggled with a physical ailment for years and suddenly it's gone, for some reason people think that person should go, thank you, Lord, and walk away. I mean, these people were having physical responses to Jesus healing their bodies. And it was dramatic. And it was off-putting to some people. And he said, we were growing and losing people faster than you could imagine. People were coming to see people get healed and going out the back door because they just didn't want the mess. Just awkward. I don't want to be around it. And the heartache that came with that as a pastor to watch people lean in and then lean away and leave the church, he said the heartache was so difficult that at one Sunday morning he said, Lord, can we just have a normal service? And he said, the minute I said it, I regretted it. And Lord gave him a nice little normal service. And nothing dramatic happened at all for about 17 years. He said, Randy, for 17 years, I felt like I was doing church with my best sermon or my best song or my best PowerPoint slide and nothing else. He said, it was like death. Because his response to the Lord moving in power caused the Lord to go, okay, Friends, the Lord is going to do things among us, and how we respond to that will determine what he does next. And so when we look at these miracles, I want to look at the miracle, and I want to look at all the characters in it, but I want to look at how people responded to it. Because when he moves, I don't want to get that wrong. I don't want to mess that up. Our response needs to match what will be a coming universal response. Eventually, the entire world will respond this way. In Philippians 2, 9 and 10, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We read that. We think that's about revival. No, it's about the end of the age where people who have looked at him in despair for years finally go, Oh, my word. He is who he said he is. I want to be found in this position before he returns. I want him to find that response in my heart that is gentle and genuine and warm to him, not be forced into bending a knee. It is our privilege, friends, it is our privilege to respond to him well right now. 
And what he does in our life is a perfect opportunity for us to say yes to what one day every man, woman, and child will be forced to say yes to. And that is a yes to freedom. Eric Fromm is an interesting character. He was an intellectual, he was a psychologist and a philosopher. He was born in Germany in 1900. And as a Jew and as an intellectual, he saw that he was on a collision course with the Nazi regime when they came to power. Seeing trouble coming, he fled Germany for Geneva and eventually New York City in 1934, just as the Nazis took over. Now, Fromm was a complicated individual. He was a Jew. He was an atheist. He was a democratic socialist. He was a German who eventually lived in Mexico but had deep, strong feelings about the U.S. government. His most popular work that he wrote was probably the most interesting thing about him. He documented the instances down through history, and there are many, when people who were enjoying a measure of freedom retracted from that freedom and chose fascism or chose tight government control rather to embrace their freedom. Trending towards freedom, they chose bondage. And Fromm believed that people struggled with dangers that were inherent with freedom. And these were the dangers that he saw with people being free. One was authoritatism, that there would be a person who would take advantage of the freedom and they would set themselves up as an authority and then they would run the entire place. The second danger he saw was the idea of destructiveness. Someone maybe who did not like freedom might become that leader and they might dismantle the freedom that people were going through. But the, the biggest danger he saw to freedom was what he called conformity where people who were free did not exercise their freedom and became a homogenous unit. And what is the point of freedom if you don't live in it? His book was eventually titled under the strange title, The Fear of Freedom. And it was said that when offered a taste of freedom, society will often turn its back and run the other way. Now that sounds terribly cynical. But history has proven it often to be right. Coming out of the Cold War, you would have thought that all of Europe would have, would have embraced great freedom. And much of Europe has turned back to a much more tight government control than they ever knew before World War II. Who would have guessed that the grandchildren of the U.S. World War II generation in the European and Pacific theaters would yearn for a government that could tell them more about how to run their lives? Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. Eric Fromm said, you can't handle freedom. Like, you don't know what to do with it. And so you tend to retreat. This is not a new idea. We see this idea in the stories of Jesus' miracles, which leads us back to the Gospel of Matthew, which I told you originally, some of you thought I forgot Matthew 8. I didn't. Matthew 8, near the end of the chapter, in the well-known story where Jesus cast demons out of the demoniac and into pigs in a village much like the one behind me. No, I'm just, maybe. I don't know. Just a thought. I'm, just, I'm working it. I'm trying to work it here. Now, depending on how you count the miracles of Jesus, you know, when he heals two people at once, is that one miracle, two miracles? I don't know. It's about 37 instances of miracles 
in the gospel. 37 different instances where he does a miracle. This happens about a third of the way through them. So in other words, he has established himself. He's not a one-hit wonder. He actually, he's a man of authority. He's a man of power. He's held large healing meetings. He has prayed for Peter's mother-in-law in private, and, and she's been healed. Uh, he's calmed the storm. All of this happened in this chapter. Okay, so it's been a a busy couple days. We don't know over the amount of time that this encompasses, but the chapter is just chock full of miracles. The people in this story were not unfamiliar with Jesus or unaware of what he seemed to be able to do. When Jesus showed up, it was time to make the popcorn. Something's going to happen. You wanted to watch this. It seems like even when Jesus, when people understand what Jesus is able to do, they're not quite ready for him to do it, though. And when he does it, they don't always react the way you think they would react. Matthew 8, 28, 34. I'm going to read the whole thing. We'll back up and kind of unpack it. When he came to the other side, to the, to the country of the Gadarenes, two of the demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out, went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. Going into the city, they told everything especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Stop just for a second. You would, okay, you would think, right? Came out to have a carnival, came out to have a picnic, came out to give them the key to the city, came out with donuts. The whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. A little immediate background on this story. This is recorded in three places. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. John does not tell it. You'll find if you study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, are more narrative-driven. And you'll often find the same stories told from different angles. There's a lot of stories John just doesn't tell. John focuses uh, a little more on the relationship with Jesus. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. And we'll pull from each of those a little bit. But we'll re we read from Matthew because it is the shortest version and it gives us the most details. Mark and Luke speak longer and tell us less. They've got like preacher's disease or something. I don't know what. But they, they talk longer and they don't give us as much info. So that's why we, we read that version. When people see differences in the gospel accounts of stories, they tend to flip out a little bit. And they get stuck. How come Matthew says it this way and Mark says it this way? Okay. If Mark seems to tell one story and Luke tells the story a little bit differently, some people who are vested in disbelieving anyway will say, well, you just can't trust the Bible. They tell the story so many different ways. That's not actually true. A good rule of literary criticism or of, of kind of dissecting the Gospels is this. If you find an apparent error in a good author or in a book that seems to be credible... If there, then you assume there are things you do not understand until you are proven differently, okay? Like, look at it and examine it and go, okay, maybe there's more here than you think. Too many modern scholars don't want to assume that they don't know something, and so they'll look at this, and oh, well, it's different, and, and they'll, they'll 
discredit it. There are reasons why their stories are a little different. There's two differences, major differences from the other passages. Matthew and Mark name it as happening in different places. If you read Matthew and Mark, they say it happened one place. Luke says it happened somewhere else. Well, then you've got to throw the whole story out. No, you don't. It's not that easy, okay? Mark describes the region. Matthew describes the specific area where it happens. It would be like saying it happened in Leewood. Where did it happen? It happened in Kansas City. Anybody who understands the area would go, well, yeah, that makes total sense. But because the names are a little bit different, we get the idea that it's a different spot, but there's no conflict there. It happened in the same spot. Here's the other difference. Luke and Mark only mention one demoniac. And Matthew mentions two. Some would say, well, the story's not true. The guys didn't even get together and tell, you know, decide what story they were going to tell. It's not accurate. No, actually, that works in favor of the Gospels. Some of those variations, it, it gives authority to the fact that individuals wrote these. But how do, you, how do you reconcile the fact that one group says there's two demoniacs, one says there's one? That's not a contradiction, okay? Ladies, you send your husband to Target. He'll come back, and he'll say, I saw Eugene at Target. If you go to Target, you'll come back and say, I saw Eugene and his family at Target, and they were picking up ice for the company picnic, and later they're going to go to Larry's. We call that the girl version at our house. Okay? There's some people who tell more detail than others. Just because one mentions a demoniac and the other mentions two doesn't mean that's a contradiction. Had he said there was only one demoniac and there are no others, we'd have an issue, but that's not it. Maybe there was one who was the primary one who interacted with the Lord. We don't know. But that's not a contradiction that invalidates the story. It actually happens in other places as well. In Mark 10, Mark tells the story of blind Bartimaeus. Matthew tells the same story in Matthew 20, and there's, there's more than one. So it happens a lot. Why talk about this? Just to lay it to rest so that later you're not flipping through the Gospels going, hey, this doesn't make sense. It, it's fine. It all, it all gels. As I read all of this, a couple of things stick out as particularly applicable to me as we're asking Jesus for the miraculous within our own community. You look at this, and hopefully it's a little hard to relate to the demon-possessed man. Right? Okay? Most of you go, don't go, yeah, I, 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 that's me. Somebody else might go, uh, maybe it's them, but nobody says, nobody says it's you. It's hard to relate to the pigs, hopefully. But the townspeople, the townspeople who have a heart for Jesus at some level because they've heard of him through the grapevine, they've been told of his greatness, and maybe they even believe, but they haven't even seen yet, they suddenly see Jesus move, and they're not sure how they want to respond. I feel that. Like, we've been there. Events immediately prior to this, he's healing people and he's walking on water and calming stories. He's doing all of these things. And as they see him coming, you can always, almost imagine that anticipation rises. Oh, I hope he does something big here today. Remember what it was like to go to church and hope the Lord showed up? Remember? You know? Oh, I'm hungry, Lord. I hope you do something here. Jesus meets us at our point of anticipation. And they anticipate he might do something because if you look through the rest of the chapter before this, there's not anything that Jesus does that isn't unbelievably crazy. And so he's coming to their town and Jesus moves in part in response to their anticipation. Actually, lack of anticipation 
seems to have some effect on Jesus' willingness to move. It says in Matthew 13, 58, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So there are situations where apparently Jesus enters the room, looks around and goes, nobody thought I was coming. I'm just going on to the next place. But they had some level of anticipation. So the fact that these guys were set free in their town speaks to the credit of the townspeople. Because there were other times when Jesus just didn't respond. So he does miracles among them. It speaks to their anticipation for him. There must have been some eagerness for God to do something. They must have wanted to see Jesus do something. He found hunger there. There's a word here about asking for miracles as we lean into this. The enemy is not rattled by our scheduled meetings. He's rattled by our hunger. He's rattled by our faith. As much as Jesus is drawn to it, Satan is worried about it because he knows that the Lord has a tendency to respond to people who are hungry for him. When faith is high, the water level of activity around Jesus rises. The church meeting is not the end all of our Christian experience, but we do get out of these times what we come expecting. Some of you came expecting donuts today. Got donuts. That worked for you, didn't it? Some of you came expecting and hungry for more. And he said, I'll meet you at that level of expectation. I will meet you and you will get what you thought you were coming for. If the bridge is becoming your church family... One way you can serve your family is to be starting to think about this midweek and say, Lord, what do you want to do this week when we gather? And begin to pray and ask him to move as we gather. He can move anywhere he wants, but Lord, when we come together as a family, would you come? We're ready for you. So even as we compliment the townspeople on their faith and their expectation, there are some things that strike me as odd about this story. Matthew describes it this way. He says, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Nobody could go over there. There was this whole area around their town that they just, we don't go there. Well, what about, yeah, we don't go there. Why? Well, a couple demon-possessed guys. So you just signed over this entire area of your community because of the demons? No one could pass that way. Some of you had trouble getting here today because of the 119th Street exit that is closed. If you're heading south, you can't get off. You can't, can't get off there. There's a place where you normally would pull over and you can't pull over right now. In this case, the people of the town would drive down the highway and go, yeah, we, can't, we don't get off here. Why do we not get off here? A couple of demon-possessed guys live in a cave. Really? But Ikea is here. Yeah, we still don't get off here. Not even Ikea will make us get off of this accident. Just, just the townspeople would not go there. The demon-possessed men had driven people out of a certain area of town, and with that, the townspeople altered their way of living and accommodated the demoniac in their community. They just don't go there. Altering the course of your life to accommodate evil is making peace with the demoniac that lives in the graveyard or in the tombs of your community. It's just deciding that's just the way it is. He's going to be there forever. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to walk around it. It makes me uncomfortable. It allows the demoniac to be a part of the community without ever having actually to be confronted. People made peace with the demon in their midst. 
And they altered their own life's patterns so that demon didn't have to be confronted. Everybody in the general vicinity just adjusted. Visitors might say, oh, it's a nice town you have here. Oh, locals would reply, yeah, it's, it's a great little town. A couple of demons in the catacombs, but we don't go over there. I've always said this. What we make peace with is as important as what we make war with. The parts of our own life that we just settle for are as important as the ones we fight against. And the story that I always go back to is in the Old Testament when the Gibeonites came through and they didn't want to confront the Israelites, so they disguised themselves. They just lived over the hill. They disguised themselves as travelers from a far distance, brought their stale Pop-Tarts and everything to make it look like they'd been traveling for a long time. And when the Israelites said, where'd you guys come from? Long ways away. How do we know? Pop-Tarts are stale. This is a paraphrase. The word Pop-Tarts is not actually in any version you read, but the story is all blindly accurate. Uh, thank you. Happy Father's Day. So, so they make peace with these Gibeonites, and then they discover they just live on the other side of the hill. We made peace with these people. Now we signed a treaty. Now they're going to be with us forever. We thought they were passing through. What you make peace with is as important as what you make war with. And they have made peace. They've kind of made, come to a truce with these demons and these demoniacs, and they've allowed them to live. You know what? We'll just give you the catacombs. We didn't really want to go there anyway. Give them a little breathing room. Maybe they'll leave, them, leave us to ourselves. The enemy is not looking for breathing room in your life. He's looking for killing room. And you give him some space where he can stay, and he will push the limits. Now, you might be able to bifurcate a town, okay, to cut it and, and say, okay, this area right here, don't go there. You might be able to do that in town. You can't do that with your life. For a moment, pretend it's not a town. Pretend it's your life, and you have made peace with things that you shouldn't have made peace with. Is there an area of your finances that are out of control? You just made peace with it. You just, I, I know, I just don't even think about it. Is there a relationship in your life that is a complete dumpster fire that you've just made peace? That's the way it's going to be, and I'm just going to kind of ignore it. Is there an attitude that festers in your heart that you know is ungodly, but there's that one thing that happened to you, and you think that's your past to foster that, that fire in the background? You're allowing the enemy space to live and you've made peace with it. Nice life you got there. A couple of demons live over in that one corner, but other than that, it's a lovely, lovely place. The demons with authority in that area of your life will never be contained. They are facing eternal torment, and they want to cause as much torment in your life as they can. They're not going to stay in that little area that you think you've cordoned them off. What we make peace with is as important as what we make war with. We may not have demoniacs roaming our graveyards, but some of us make peace with dark areas of our life. He never stays where we try to keep him. You'll learn as we read this story, the townspeople were terrorized by these demoniacs. But even so, they weren't all that excited that the demoniacs got set free. Because Eric Fromm was right. There is a fear of freedom because... When part of our lives get free, we feel like now we're responsible to maintain that freedom. Can you imagine? The demoniacs got free. Okay, they don't have any clothes. They don't even like wearing clothes. They don't have jobs. 
They don't have a place to live. I mean, they can't live in the graveyard now. Suddenly, those who were suddenly made free, the rest of the community looked at and went, this was easier when they were demon-possessed because I didn't feel responsible for them. When the Lord brings freedom to a certain area, with that freedom comes a responsibility, and some people will push back against freedom because they don't want the corresponding responsibility that comes with it. I want to challenge those of you who've entertained dark areas or dark habits in your life. Do not let the deep pain associated with those areas stop you from asking Jesus for freedom in those areas. But be aware, when freedom comes into one area of your life, there's responsibility there, and it falls like dominoes, and he wants to bring freedom to other areas. I have been reading a book this week by Blessel Vanderkloek, and it's called The Body Keeps Score. Some of you guys are getting a little older, and maybe you're uh, trying home projects. You realize, ooh, the body keeps score. Right? Well, well, I say, like, you lay in tile. the body. Yeah. It's not about that kind of thing. It's about trauma and how it affects our bodies. And in, you, in reading the book, you see parallels to how trauma and sin affect us. They are not the same thing. Hear me clearly. If you've gone through traumatic things, that was not sin. However, the effects on the body can be very similar. And he makes this comment. Many traumatized people simply give up. Rather than risk experimenting with new options, they say stay stuck in the fear they know. Same thing about sin. Many people who struggle with sin in their lives, even when the Lord wants to bring freedom, stay stuck in their sin because they don't know how to go forward. And I would say the people in this town, even in anticipation of wanting Jesus to do something when he comes, were stuck in the patterns that they know. No, we keep the demoniacs in the cave. Back to the story. Jesus arrives, apparently goes straight into the heart of darkness, goes straight there to the caverns where the demoniacs live. I can almost imagine the townspeople go, no, 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 we don't go over there. Come over here to the, you know, come over here to the nice city square. We've got a retail entertainment district over here. It's very nice. We've got a two-story Chipotle. You've never seen anything like it, Jesus. Come over here. Jesus goes, no, 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 no. I, I heard there were guys who live in a cave over here. Townspeople are going, oh, gosh. He's going to the demoniacs. And as Jesus arrives and goes straight for the demoniacs, the place that the people avoided was the place that Jesus was attracted to. It's the thing about hosting Jesus. He always goes to the dark places that we're trying to hide. He knows where the skeletons are buried. He knows where the darkness is hidden. And in Matthew 8, 29, it says, Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Demons knew that they would be tormented for eternity. They're like, is it, is it time for the torment? Surely not. And they call him by name couple of interesting things about this one the demons seem to identify him really quickly very quickly he walks up and they say oh son of god in verse 29 what's interesting is two verses earlier in a small boat being tossed by waves when the disciples see jesus calming the storm how do they respond they say what sort of man is this the disciples haven't figured it out yet the demons know it two verses later oh it's the son of god you can almost hear the disciples going, that's oh, the son of God. Yeah, you figured it out right away. 
we were a little confused. So they identify him quickly, and they identify him by name. Ancient cultures believed that if you knew someone's name, their full name, it gave you a certain element of power over them. And so by listing his name, it was a bit of a dig toward Jesus, even though they knew that he was all-powerful. For them to instantly identify him personally was a bit of a challenge, even if they knew it was all for nothing. They expect to be cast into the abyss as the time for the torment come. But they take a swipe at Jesus anyway. Jesus didn't need to know all their names. In another, another one of the stories that tells this story, he asks them their name, and they say legion. They give him a number. Legion means thousands. In Mark's telling of the story, the demon speaks and says, my name is Legion. We don't know if that was, uh, uh, you know, just a round number. Exactly. All we do know that Jesus immediately cast them into a herd of pigs that one of the other gospels says were 2,000. There were 2,000 pigs in one spot. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting when you read and you study this out. Some of you are just right now, you're mulling over the idea of 2,000 pigs in one spot. It's a fearsome thought. There are actually things written about the idea of animal rights in, re in re relation to this chapter. You'll find like const constant articles about animals' rights and was Jesus right to do this and what about the poor pigs. Let me just tell you right now, pigs are totally depraved and unredeemable. If you've ever worked with pigs, you would not wonder. There is, there, no, they're just, you know, bacon is the one, the one uh, like, good that comes from pigs and it costs them everything, okay? Like, the, the only good pig is bacon. So he casts these 2,000 pigs. Forget the pig's death for a minute. Ask yourself, what does it mean for a region to be able to host 2,000 pigs? Got to be a pork market somewhere, Right? The guy who owns 2,000 pigs is not substance farming. He's not just, I just need a few for my family. No, this guy has trucks and trailers. He's the Tyson of pigs. What Tyson is to chicken, this guy is to pigs. And this is in a region where, yes, there were Gentiles, but not that many. Somebody in the Jewish community there was breaking the rules. This community was already embracing things that the Bible had told them not to. It seems like the demoniacs in the cave were not the only ones who were not walking in obedience to the Lord. There were some making peace with demoniacs. There were others that were making peace with, we live, we live in a town with 2,000 pigs. And we eat them. And it's against what the Bible teaches God's people at this point. There are scholars who insist that Jesus was doing more than just setting men free. He was sending a message to the community. Just as it was a discredit to the community that they would host demoniacs and just kind of deal with it and not confront them, it was a discredit to the community that they lived in an area where 2,000 pigs could roam, and they just did life with it. When God brings freedom, it is the beginning. It is not the end. And he's like, you know what? You're going to be free of the demoniacs, and we're going to bring you back into alignment with the Old Testament of what I've taught you. When freedom comes to an individual, to a church, to a community, everything that displeases the Lord has to go. 
Some of you who are seeking freedom in one area, when you get it, buckle up. Because you thought this entire area of your life was lily white, and there was this one little area was gray, and then God makes that white, and you go, oh, that's beige. That's not as clean as I thought. He brings freedom into your life, and suddenly you see other areas. Let me just tell you, go with it, okay? Go with it. Don't shut him out. Could it be that the Lord sent the demons into the animals knowing that they would run down the hill? I mean, demons love death. They're going to do that. We need to prepare for God when he begins to set people free and set areas of our own heart free for him to continue that work and not to say one and done. Now, Mark does include a detail here that is not as explained as well in Matthew. Mark chapter 5, reading 14 to 20. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. Told what? Whatever they were told is what the people got worked up about. And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, remember the other, the other version says two, sitting there clothed in his right mind and they were afraid. Put a pin in that. The guy was naked living in caves and they were okay with that. Now he's sitting there, eating a sandwich, with clothes on, and they're afraid of that. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. They're still fixated on the pigs. There was a demoniac set free, and they're still talking about the pigs. These are people who had anticipated Jesus' visit, and they probably would have celebrated it except when they realized that Jesus setting people free would cost them something and pointed out their own error. Friends, I am believing for miracles in this body. If we don't see God in power encounters, what are we believing for? But I am also deeply concerned about how we respond. Because people in the village were excited to Jesus, see Jesus come too until he started to do stuff. And in verse 17 says, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Thanks for setting the demoniac free. Next train leaves in five minutes. You need to move on, Jesus. This just got personal. You clean them up. We're a little afraid you're going to come for us. I want to ask if uh, the worship team would return. This is not a prophecy, okay? Except to say that to prophesy is to declare truth. When Jesus starts to move in power, some will experience freedom and others will beg him to depart. Freedom in Jesus is disruptive. He will rattle our cages. We have got to want Jesus in all of his disruptive Jesusness as much as we want to see people set free because Jesus setting people free is going to reveal every idle or ungodly treaty that we have made with darkness. The most disruptive thing he could do in our lives is to start to bring freedom. Like... It will mess us up if we don't receive it well. How valuable might it have been if the townspeople had said, oh, look what he did for them. What might he be here to do for us? 
But instead, they begged him to go. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. I want to pray for folks in just a, a couple of different areas here. First of all, you don't need to raise your hand or anything, but I want to search your own heart. Just do business with the Lord here. I want to pray for people who recognize that there is an area of your life that you have cordoned off and you think because nobody knows and it's not having any other effect on the rest of your life and you're able to manage life, that because you've cordoned it off, it's okay. And I want to charge you, the Lord wants to bring freedom in that area. You say, well, who would even know? Somebody's going to know. He wants to bring freedom every area of your life. The second charge would be, I want to ask you to begin to join me in praying for the miraculous among us and preparing our hearts for it to happen. I don't mean just, yeah, somebody kind of felt maybe like the Lord was there and they cried a little bit. That's all good. That's We want all that. We want to feel his presence. I mean seeing people set free in a dramatic way and saying yes to it. That is, that's a promise we're going to hitch our wagon to. That's who we want to be. So, Father, we want to ask boldly for the miraculous in this place. Lord, we pray that we would not make peace with darkness in any part of our heart, but that we would invite you in to speak in every realm of our life, in every realm of our community, so that the dominoes begin to fall and freedom begins to come. Would you, Jesus? If you found a group of people waiting, Lord, would you come? Would you come? Some of you are struggling right now with something you, you actually do need a miracle. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's in your finances. But you need the Lord to move. Something's got to happen. You came. You were thinking about it as you drove here today. Going